Welcome, everyone, to this evening's public lecture by Justin Lin on demystifying the Chinese economy. My name is Danny Kua, and I will be chairing the event this evening. This evening's public lecture has been jointly organized by Sybil, the Confucius Institute for Business London, and LSE's Economics Department. Some quick housekeeping. For those wishing to tweet about this event, and at LSE we encourage live tweeting at our public events. The hashtag, as you will see up here, is hash LSE China. Please, however, can I remind you to put your cell phones on silent to avoid disrupting the event. As you can see, this lecture is being recorded, and we hope that a podcast will be available soon after the event. The running order for this evening, Justin has kindly agreed to speak for about 40 minutes and then engage in the remaining time in a question-and-answer session, scheduled to end at 8.15. There will be a short reception afterwards, about which I will say more towards the end of this evening. What I would like to do now is to say a few words of introduction to Justin and to the evening more generally before I turn over. As you know, Justin Lin is professor at Peking University's National School of Development, and formerly, he was chief economist and senior vice president of the World Bank, a position that he held from 2008 until earlier this year when he returned full-time to Peking University. Justin was the first World Bank chief economist from a developing economy. And in the words of a World Bank colleague, the one guy in the history of all the chief economists at the World Bank who has actually been part of the lifting out of poverty of 600 million people. What more do you need, you might ask? But of course, there is a lot more. Over the last quarter of a century, while writing hundreds of scholarly articles and scores of books, Justin has at the same time been actively engaged in economic policymaking. On the global stage, he has helped guide, obviously, the World Bank's intellectual and economic research agenda. But beyond that, he has also served on, among other distinguished groups, the UN Millennium Task Force on Hunger, the Eminent Persons Group of the Asian Development Bank, and the National Committee on United States-China Relations. In all of this, both inside the Centers for International Policymaking and outside, Justin has been a gentle but sharp and insistent cri critic of the so-called Washington Consensus, and he has provided a sensible voice for balance in thinking on economic development. Justin's lecture this evening is on China's economic growth, how in the last three decades it has transformed the economy, what prospects there are for ongoing growth in the future, and on the mechanisms underlying China's growth. Many of us will already know the cold, hard facts on China's economic performance, how since 1979 China's economy has grown at an average of 9% a year, how China has lifted 627 million people out of extreme poverty, accounting for more than 100% of the world's poverty reduction in this time, how the world's economic center of gravity has shifted 
basically single-handedly from China's growth alone, 5,000 kilometers eastwards, pulled off of its moorings, held firm throughout the 1980s in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but now placed on a trajectory hurtling towards East Asia. This litany of facts will be old hat to many of us in this room. But we shouldn't forget how these changes remain something at which to marvel. Those involved in the study and the practice of economic development know how difficult it is to grow even small or medium-sized societies. But to realize that the world's most populous economy over the last three decades has also delivered the world's most rapid growth and has lifted out of extreme poverty nearly double the population of the United States. Well, to paraphrase my friend Kishore Mabubani, that's a bit like watching the fattest kid in school win the 110-meter hurdles and the marathon race. Now, of course, such dramatic changes will have detractors, doubters, and unintended dislocations. Skeptics forebodingly predict China's imminent slowdown they range from Nobel Prize winners in the West through small-town neighborhood fortune tellers in the East. They have been predicting China's slowdown every single year now for the last 30 years. Someday, of course, they will be right. And even if China's peaceful rise actually ends up bringing the maximum economic benefits to the greatest number, not everyone will see that development quite so rosily. The German Marshall Foundation survey on transatlantic trends recently reported that while 76% of Americans aged 18 to 24 say that Asia is the most important region for their national interest, 63% of Americans also say that China represents economic threat. Double the number of Americans who say China is more an economic opportunity. Along that same vein, many of those who acknowledge that China's growth through poverty reduction has done more for the welfare of humanity than any other economic development in the last 50 years. At the same time, they are quick to fault China's development path for dangerously unbalancing the global economy. Now, through all of this, while China continues to make great strides in economic development, its national leadership has devoted far less energy to explaining to the rest of the world what it is exactly that China does. At the same time that China pays lip service to soft power, its international relations remain marred by a relative lack of high-level political attention to those foreign ties, constantly repeating instead that it wants to have those ties determined by only economics. And maybe that is no longer enough. More than ever, we need greater understanding through discussion between China and the West as the global economy continues on its most profound change in the last 100 years. We are grateful this evening to have with us one of the most charismatic, articulate, and intelligent of those who study China's economy and its place in the world. If you could please join me in welcoming Professor Justin Lin.
Well, thank you for such a nice introduction. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity of meeting you here tonight on the occasion uh, myself receiving an honorary doctor degree from LSE and to discuss with you one of my new book, Demystifying the Chinese Economy. And we know that if we want to describe the achievement of Chinese economy, since 1979 with only one war, I think the only suitable war should be miracle. Because when China started the transition from a planning economy to a market economy in 1979, China was an extremely poor country because in 79, the average per capita income in China was less than one third of the average of the African continents. And during the transition, China did not follow the standard approach recommended by the international community. That was Washington Consensus Big Bang approach. China adopted a dual check approach. And because of that, like Danny just mentioned, most of the time in the past 30 years, people predict Chinese economy was going to collapse anytime. But as Danny mentioned, China, instead of collapse, maintained 32 years of average 9.9% per year of growth. And uh, such a high growth in such a large you know, country like China, which we never observed in the human history. And uh, because of that, by the end of this year, the per capita income in China is likely to reach 6,000 per capita. And that will be about five times of the average of the African continents. And in this process, it was not only reforming the economy, maintaining the dynamic economic growth. China also engaged in the opening up of the economy. When China started this transition, China was an extremely inward-looking cross-economy because measured by the trade-dependent ratio, that was import and export as a percentage of Chinese GDP. At that time, it was only 9.5%. But the growth of trade in the past 30 years was about 17% per year continuously. And as a result, China now becomes the largest exporter in the world and the second largest trading companies in the world, next only to the US. And likely, in one or two years, China will become the largest trading com uh, country in the world. During this period of time, as Danny mentioned, 600 million people get out of the properties. And this figure is very important because, you know, like the World Bank, one of its mandate is to reduce poverty in the world. But if we exclude the poverty reduction in China, we find 
the poverty number in the world did not decline. Instead, it continued to rise. And China not only made a contribution to the improvement of living standards in China, it also makes very important contribution to the global economies, maintain the stability and dynamic economic growth. And two good example was one in 1998. During the East Asian financial crisis, China did not devalue its currency and avoid the competitive devaluation in the crisis economies in East Asia, but also maintained in about 8% growth rate during that period of time, help other East Asian economies to pull out of the crisis about two years after the crisis hit. And the other one was in 2008, recently. During the global financial crisis, China you know, was the first one to engage in 4 trillion yuan of fiscal stimulus. And it became the first country to recover from the crisis. That was the first quarter of 2009. And because of China during this period of time maintained at the rate of about 9% growth rate and helped the rest of the world to you know, recover from the crisis. But as I mentioned, most of the time, people predict Chinese economy is going to collapse. And recently, this kind of you know, rhetoric reappeared again. And so in this evening, I'd like to share with you about six questions. The first question, how come it was possible for China to achieve such a high growth rate during its transition period? Although many people predict Chinese economy would collapse. But instead of collapse, China maintains such a high growth rate. How come it was possible? And secondly, how come China could not have a similar growth rate before the transition in 1979? If the transition and the reform was the reason for the high growth rate in China, how come other socialist countries during the transition periods and uh, non-socialist countries in Latin America, in South Asia, in Africa countries, they also engaged in the reform and the transition in the 1980s, 1990s. How come they could not have a similar performance as China? In effect, most of them during the transition period, instead of dynamic economic growth, they encountered transitional collapse, and stagnation. And my first question is that everything should have two sides. China achieved a lot in the past 30 years in terms of growth rate. But what are the causes that China paid during its, for its success? And my first question is that can China maintain a similar dynamic economic growth in the coming decades? And I think this is a very important question for the world now, because the world is still in the crisis mode. And the way out should be growth. And uh, the source of growth from China would be a very important com component of the global growth. And the last question. I was the World Bank chief economist, so certainly I concerned about other developing countries. So my question is that,
can other developing country achieve similar dynamic economic growth as in China in the past 30 years? Those will be the six questions I'd like to you know, analyze or share with you my view about that. Regarding the first question, that the dynamic economic growth in China in the past 30 years, we need to recognize dynamic economic growth is a very modern phenomenon. Because we know that before the 18th century, even for the country currently is the advanced country like Western European countries, before the 18th century, the growth rate was extremely low. According to historian like Angus Madison, the average annual growth rate of per capita income in the West before 18th century was 0.05% per year. That means what? It took 1,400 years to double the per capita income. And after the 18th century and to the 19th century, the rate of growth jumped 20 times from 0.05% per year to 1% per year. And the time required to double per capita income reduced from 1,400 to 70 years. And by the time of late 19th century to recently, you know, before the financial crisis, those about 100 years, the rate of growth in the West doubled again from 1% per year to 2% per year. Then the time required to double per capita income reduced from 70 years down to 35 years. And what was the reason behind such a dramatic transformation from 1,400 years to double per capita income reduced down to 70 years, not down to 35 years? Well, I'm sure every one of you here knows the answer. Because in the 18th century, there was the Industrial Revolution. After the Industrial Revolution, the rate of technological changes accelerated. And those kind of technological changes improved labor productivities. And so the income can be increased. And then because the rate of technological changes accelerated, so the rate of income growth accelerated. And this is the secret of dynamic economic growth in a modern time for every country. But if the technological changes is the driver for dynamic economic growth, then for a developing country, they can have something called the advantage of backwardness. Because for the technological innovation in the high-income country, because since the Industrial Revolution, they have been always on the global technological frontiers. Technological innovation in high-income country means invention. Invention requires large capital input, as well as very risky. But for a developing country, certainly technological innovation is very important. However, a developing country, the technological innovation can come from technological licensing, technological assumption, te technological imitation. And the cost for those kind of innovation is much smaller and uh, much less risky. So if a developing country 
knows how to tap into the potential of advantage of backwardness. Their rate of growth can be two times or even three times higher than a high-income country. And uh, from the empirical evidence we find, <coughs> since the World War II, there were 13 economies in the world. They tap into the potential and maintain at a rate of 7% or more for 25 years or more. And China became one of those 13 economies after 1979. And so the answer for the first question is very simple. China, since 1979, started to tap into the potential of the advantage of backwardness. So their rate of growth can be two times, three times higher than the high-income countries. But if my answer to the first question is the advantage of backwardness, then we become puzzling. Because the advantage of backwardness has been there for centuries. How come only after 79, China tapped into that potential? Well, the answer was because of the development strategy that China adopted since the 1950s. We know that in the 1950s, the socialist government took over and started to build up the modern nation in China. In the 1950s, 1960s, the goal of the Chinese government was to overtake Britain in 10 years and to catch up the US in 15 years. So what does that kind of development strategy imply? That means that China wanted to build up the other ones, the modern, large-scale, capital-intensive industry immediately after the 1950s. And since China wanted to build up the advanced industries immediately, certainly China cannot benefit from the advantage of backwardness for two reasons. One, either those kind of industries were still under the patent protection. If China wanted to you know, license those kind of industries, then it's very expensive. And more important than that, those kind of advanced industries were considered as industry related to national security in a high-income country. So even China wanted to buy to license, it was impossible. So China needed to reinvent the wheels. And the cost for reinventing the wheel will be at least equally high, equally risky as in a high-income country. That's one thing. <clears throat> and uh, in addition to that, and uh, from my point of view, even more important was that those kind of uh, once kept intensive industries was not a competitive advantage of Chinese economy. Because in the 1950s, 1960, even up to 1970s, China was a poor agrarian economy. China was a capital skills economy. And China did not have the competitive advantage in the capital intensive industries. Since those kind of industries was not China's competitive advantages, that means what? Firms in those kind of sectors were not viable in open competitive market. And to set up those kind of firms, China need to rely on government mobilization of resources for the investment. Not only so, 
For their continual operation, they require subsidies and protections. And those kind of subsidies and protection create all kind of distortions. And with the distortion, not only the resources will be misallocated, it creates rent and ransacking. And as a result, the efficiency of the Chinese economy was extremely low. Even though China has a very good implementation, so China was able to test the nuclear bomb in the 1960s, China was able to launch the satellite in the 1970s. However, the different standard improvement in China was extremely little. And that was the reason why, by the time of 1979, the per capita income in China was less than one-third of the African average. Okay. And uh, so it was wrong strategies. that China was unable to tap into the advantage of backwardness. And only after 1979, China started to develop its economy according to China's comparative advantages, mostly in the labor-intensive sectors. And those kind of sectors were consistent with China's comparative advantages, so they can export and they become very dynamic. So that's the reason. But if the wrong strategies was the reason why China was unable to tap into the potential of advantage of backwardness. We know that strategy was implemented not only in China. It was implemented in all the socialist countries. Not only in all the socialist countries, actually, it was implemented almost in every developing country since the Second World War. Because the development thinking of the Second World World was a so-called destructuralism, the impulse of human strategies. At that time, the development thinking, you know, you know, refer the reason why the developing country to be backward was because they didn't have the modern industries. And they, they, they think that if a developing country wanted to catch up the high-income country to become a modern country, they need to own those kind of modern industries. So their policy framework, no matter it's in a socialist country or in non-socialist country, actually was very similar. They all adopt those kind of heavy industry-oriented, you know, impulse-subduing strategies. And they all have all kind of distortion, as we observe in China and so on. And then because of that, they, their economic performance were all very poor. And so by the time of the 1980s, 1990s, almost every developing country engaged in economic transition from heavy government intervention to a well-functioning market economies. But except for China, Vietnam, and a few others, most countries during the transition period, they encounter some kind of collapse in their economies and stagnated for a long time. And how come the performance was so different? Again, it related to the strategies. Because in the 1980s, in the 1990s, when other countries started their transition, the thinking at that time was neoliberalism. The thinking at that time was Washington consensus. Because according to the analysis at that time, 
The reason why the socialist country or developing country could not perform well was because they did not have similar market institution, well-functioning market institution as in a high-income country. So the policy otherwise was to you know, remove all those distortions, so allow the market to function well in order to improve their economic performance. And the policy recipe was the Washington Consensus was the structure RP to implement the privatization, marketization, liberalization simultaneously. And at that time, this was sought as the only feasible way to move a country from a planning economy to a market economy. And as I mentioned, if a country wanted to adopt other approaches that was considered as a wrong approach. But here is that. A lot of distortion in the former socialist country or in other developing countries, in effect, was designed as a way to protect non-viable firms in the old priority sectors. If the government removed all those distortions immediately, simultaneously, all those firms, because they are not viable in a market economy, they are going to collapse, right? And if they are collapsed, you are going to create 30%, 40% of unemployment in a country. And most of those unemployment would occur in the urban sectors because those kind of priority sectors in general are in the urban areas. And with 30, 40% of unemployment, you cannot have social stability, political stability. Without stability, you cannot have the economic growth, right? And uh, as a result, many countries, for fear of those kind of social economic consequences, after the implementation of the Washington Consensus Reform, the government reintroduced all kind of disguised subsidy and protection from back to back. And those kind of disguised subsidy and protection were even less efficient than the original subsidy and protection. And certainly, by that, they could not perform well. And a Chinese approach, a dual-check approach, at the beginning, according to you know, many publications by masters of economics, so that a dual-check was the worst possible scenario. But if we understand that the firms in the older priority sectors were not viable, and if you want to avoid the collapse, the chaos, then it's very important for the government to provide some kind of transitory protection and uh, to maintain their stability. And then certainly you want to move to the market economy and the pragmatic way is to liberalize the entry to the sectors which are consistent with the country compared advantages, which were replaced in the past. And the government facilitated the entry of the private sectors or foreign direct investment to those kind of new sectors. And uh, since they are consistent with the comparative quantity of the economy, they are very competitive. And uh, the growth in that kind of sectors, you know, can tap into the potential of the advantage of backwardness. And this is the way so-called a gradual dual-track approach. Maintaining the stability, but encouraging the entry to the new sectors to achieve dynamic economic growth. And dynamic economic growth also create a condition for the reform of all sectors. 
And that is the reason why China could maintain the stability and perform so well of average 9.9% growth rate in the past 32 years. But everything certainly should have some kind of prices, right? What are the prices that China pay for that? The prices that China pay for this success are many phenomena we observe in China today. The rising income disparity. When China started transition in 1979, China was quite an egalitarian society. The Gini coefficient in China was around 0.3. Today, the Gini coefficient, according to official data, was 0.45. And according to some private sectors, you know, some private institution estimation, it's close to 0.6 among one of the worst situations in the world. And then the widespread corruptions. And also, you know, the imbalance between saving and investment. China saves so much, investment so much, and the consumption. Consumption only, you know, reduced from about 60% of GDP down to now about 35% of GDP. And China also created a huge trade surplus and a trade, you know, conflicts with other countries. All those are the consequences. How come all those are consequences? From what I see, they are all the result of the remaining in a distortion as a legacy of the dual track of the reform. I mentioned that to protect the older non-viable sectors, China need to subsidize those kind of older firms. How to subsidize them? One way is through financial depression. Currently, the financial sector in China is dominated by four largest state-owned banks and also equity markets. And this kind of large bank and equity market can only serve the financial needs of large enterprises. And we know that a lot of those kind of state-owned enterprises, they are large, right? And before the transition in 79, they, you know, their investment, their operation, all came from the direct fiscal appropriation. In 83, China started to introduce reform and change from the fiscal appropriation to bank loans. However, as I mentioned, they are not viable. They need to have subsidies. And so the way to subsidize them is to, through the financial sectors, through the bank loan, were through the possibility for them to list on the stock market. But to subsidize them, the cost of loan or the capital are artificially replaced. But if you replace, that means what? They are subsidized by. Who subsidized them? Those people who put the money into the financial institution, including agricultural households, general households, or small medium-sized firms. They put the financial resources into the system. They subsidize the large enterprises owned by the state. And during the transition period, certainly some rich people, they also own large companies. They receive subsidies. And they are subsidized by other people. They are relatively poor. You will ask the poor people to subsidize the growth of the firm owned by the state or the rich people certainly you're going to observe income distribution, the wealth, increasingly concentrate on the rich people. 
and also the large corporation. That is what we observe. And causing the income disparities. And this kind of distortion creates a rent, right? Whoever can get access to the financial services, they get subsidies. And certainly you are going to see many people will you know, have the rent-seeking activity, that's the economic term, or in the other term is corruption and also you know, bribing and so on. And that is the reason why it's so widespread. And not only so, the concentration of the wealth on the rich people. We know the rich people, their consumption propensity is lower than the poor people. And if you have a wealth concentrated on the rich people, certainly the consumption as a percentage of GDP will be reduced. And the saving as a percentage of GDP will increase. And especially if you concentrate the wealth in a large corporation, their consumption propensity is even lower than rich households. And that's the reason why saving in China increased so rapidly. And a lot of those savings, actually it's not in the household, it's in the corporation. And if you save a lot, certainly you will invest a lot. And if you invest a lot, you create a production capacities. However, consumption as a percentage of GDP is declining, that means domestic absorption is declining. And so the gap between production capacity and domestic consumption become trade surplus in China. So all those problems in China today related to the legacy of this kind of dual-track reform from the past. And it's not only in the financial sectors. It's also in the resources sectors. It's a way to subsidize the old state-owned sectors. The government in the past replaced the prices of natural resources. And to compensate for that, the Chinese government basically does not levy any resources in our loyalty. Okay, at the beginning it was fine because resources prices was low, and so the loyalty on the resources was also low. But after the 1990s, resources prices was liberalized. So it's international prices now. But the resources loyalty is the law. And so as a result, whoever can get access to the mining right immediately can get a transfer of the national wealth to them. And, uh, and, 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 and so it created a lot of rich people overnight. And so you can see many people will lobby the government to get those kind of mining right. So it contributes to not only the income distribution issue, but also the corruption issue. Not only in the resources sectors, also in the service sectors. You know, the telecommunication, financial sectors, and the transportation sector, they are all monopolized. With the monopoly, you create a monopoly rent. And certainly, it will also contribute to income distribution issue and over-concentration of wealth in large corporations. Laws are the consequences of the dual check of the reform. And I mentioned dual track reform has its merit in the 1980s, 1990s. Because at that time, China was a poor, you know, capital scarce economies and uh, large state-owned sectors. Without the subsidies, they cannot survive. 
But I think now it's time to reform. The reason is that, as I mentioned, China now is a high middle income country with per capita income of 6,000. Many sectors in the past which were not China's compared advantages, like car, like equipment, but now it's already become China's compared advantages. Probably the firm in those kind of sectors, they can compete with the multinational in domestic market and in international market. So you have you know, car manufacturer like Zili, you have equipment producer like Sanyi. They could compete, they can compete internationally. So that means those kind of sectors now become China's compared advantages. There's no reason to continue to subsidize them anymore. And so for the improvement of those kind of income distribution issue, the corruption issue, and so on, China should engage in the reform to remove the remaining distortion from the dual track and complete the transition to a well-functioning market economy now. Luckily, the Chinese government understands that. So if you read the policy framework of the 12th five-year plan, or the document of the 18th Party's Congress recently, those are the direction of reform, the direction of deepening the market-oriented reform. So I think uh, with the implementation of those kind of new policy, I think uh, China can complete the transition from a dual-track economy to a well-functioning market economy and also in the process mitigate or eliminate those problems I just described. But if China can proceed in the way as I desired, how long can China maintain this kind of dynamic growth? And many people were very pessimistic. Very pessimistic for several reasons. China already achieved 32 years of 9.9% growth rate. We never observed any country ever maintained such high growth rate for so long. Even for Japan, for small East Asian economies, you know, they maintain those kind of growth rate for 20 years, 30 years at most. And now China, already 32 years. And so many people think, well, they need to slow down because there's no historical evidence for that. And the other argument is that, well, China, as I mentioned, at the end of this year, the per capita income will reach 6,000. And if we measure by purchasing power parity, it can be about 9,000 US dollars. And again, historic evidence show any country, no matter how dynamically they grow, once they reach about 10,000 US dollars, their growth rate all decline. Those are the two reasons why people are very pessimistic. But my argument is that they use wrong references. If we want to predict an economy, its potential for dynamic growth, we need to look into how large is the advantage of backwardness. How large is the technological gap that the economy with, with the high-income countries? And uh, the newest data I have for China was an estimation by Angus Madison before he passed away last year. That was 2008. In 2008, the per capita income in China was measured by purchasing power parity, was 21% of the per capita income of the US. 
And I would like to argue the purchasing power parity if it's a very good measurement of the overall technological achievement of our country. Because the purchasing power parity measurement, you know, is an indicator of the overall average labor productivity of the country. And labor productivity is a very good proxy for the overall technological achievement of the country. Okay, in 2000, in 2008, China's per capita income was 21% of the U.S. per capita income. So there's some gap. But how this gap can translate into the possibility for dynamic growth? From the theory, we can only say, oh, with a gap, the growth rate in China can be higher than the growth rate in the U.S. But we don't know how fast that can be. If we want to see how fast that can be, we should use the experiences in the history. And uh, if we look into Japan, Japan's per capita income in 1951 was 21% of the U.S. And it was Singapore in 1967. It was Taiwan in 1975. It was Korea in 1977. For Japan, we know it's Asian economy. It was one of those certain economies I just mentioned. Again, Japan also tapped into the potential of the you know, advantage of backwardness. For Japan, from 1951 to 1971, for 20 years, the average annual growth rate for Japan was 9.2%. For Singapore, from 1967 to 1987, tapped into the potential of advantage of backwardness. Singapore maintained 20 years of average 8.6% annual growth rate. For Taiwan, from 75 to 95, the average annual growth rate was 8.3%. For Korea, from 77 to 97, the average annual growth rate was 7.6%. And uh, that indicated, you know, that's your fact. For the East Asia economy, in the process of their economic development, they utilize that technological potential and they maintained 20 years of 76 to 9.2% growth rate. So there's no reason to doubt. It is possible for China to maintain about 20 years of 8% growth rate. The potential is there. Certainly, to tap into that potential, China need to engage in the deepening of the market reform as I just described. And China also needs to develop its economy according to its competitive advantages to maintain competitiveness and also tap into the potential of advantage of backwardness, as we just discussed. My last question. For other developing countries, 80% of the population in the world still live in the developing countries. And if you look into the gross performance, actually it's quite disappointing because from 1950s to 2008, only 28 economies in the world were able to close the income gap with the U.S. 10 percentage point or more. 
only 28 economies. We know we have 225 countries in the world. If we want to use economies unit, we have about 250 economies in the world. Only 28 economies in the world from 1950s to 2008 for 58 years. Only 28 economies were able to narrow the gap with the U.S. for 10 percentage point or more. And among those 28 economies, only 12 were not European countries, were oil producing or diamond producing countries. So the performance seems to be very poor. But the reason why they are very poor was because they are guided by the wrong ideas. I think from my analysis is that if they can develop their economies according to their competitive advantages to maintain competitiveness and to tap into the potential of the advantage of backwardness, I think every developing country in the world should have the potential to maintain 8% or more growth rate continuously for one generation or more. And just like the East Asian economy, to transform their economy from low-income status to middle-income status or even high-income status within one generation or two generations. I think the potential is there for every developing country. But if they wanted to achieve that, on the one hand, as I mentioned, They need to develop their economy according to their competitive advantages in order to tap into the potential of advantage of backwardness. And we also need to recognize most of the developing countries, they have a lot of wrong intervention guided by wrong policy in the past. So they need to do the transition. And in the process of transition, the dual-track approach should provide some insight. If you have a large sector which were protected by the older, dis- older distortion in the past, instead of removing all those di- distortion immediately, it may be more pragmatic to provide some kind of transitory protection in order to maintain stability. But the government also needs to find an innovative way to liberalize the entry to the new sector which are consistent with their comparable advantages, facilitate foreign direct investment or private investment in those kind of sectors in order to achieve dynamic growth and also tap into the potential of the advantage of backwardness. If every country can do that, every country should have the hope to achieve prosperity. And that is a message in my other book called The Quest for Prosperity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin, for an excellent lecture, giving us insight into China's path of development, how that same mechanism that has given it its success for the last three decades also contains within it, if we don't continue the reform, the seeds of the problems that we now observe in China's economy. He's also given us a very optimistic picture of how other developing economies in the world can take these lessons, suitably modified for their relative patterns of comparative advantage to leverage
these same kind of growth paths. I would like now to open up the event to a question and answer session. If you would, if you could put up your hand and then wait until I identify you so that we have microphones come around. If you could then also quickly identify yourself and I urge you to make your intervention a question rather than a lecture. So if you could ask, this is an opportunity for us to plug into Justin's wisdom. So in back first, we'll take questions in clusters of three or four before we have you answer them. So in back, please. Uh, the gentleman with the coat, yeah. How, how big a handicap do you see and how much slowdown when, when the ageing population in China starts to kick in in, what, 20, 25 years' time? Thank you. And then the, up against the wall? Yep. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Feng Xue from RC. Uh, my question is, uh, at, uh, well, because of the lump of uh, the, the Politburo person knows uh, for the 19th uh, Congress, uh, many reform-minded officials are excluded from the, the standing committee. So how do you think the, the, the transition from the China model to a, you mentioned uh, a well-functioned eco market economy can become uh, uh, realistic in, during the next five years? Thank you. Thank you. Now if I could have the question up here, up here, and then the gentleman behind him, just so in the front row. Thank you for a very interesting lecture. Uh, my name is Luke, LSE Development Studies. Um, Professor Lin, um, what is your take on agriculture and the role of development and taking China's example and what um, do you think that has implications for other developing countries, especially in Africa? Thank you. Thank you. And then the gentleman behind, the last question in this first cluster. Um, thank you. <clears throat> Sorry. I thank you for your impressive uh, speech tonight. And I've just checked... The, the official statistics of the uh, in this August, the GDP is 55.9 trillion, and the, the broad money, which is M2, is 93.6 um, trillion yuan. So um, the, the M2 per GDP is 167%. So as the Xu, Professor Xu Xiangnan proposed, um, Chinese uh, amazing economic performance is heavily relied on the, um, on the, the currency bubbles. How do you think of it? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Okay, if I could turn over to you, Justin. Okay. All these are very good questions. The first one about aging. It's a phenomenon that we can predict, you observe. But I don't think it's going to be a main threat for this dynamic economic growth in China. The first one is that currently, China has a very early retirement age for the you know, female they retire at the age of 50. For the male, they retire at the age of 55. And with the aging, certainly China can extend the retirement age. And that will compensate in the reduction of the growth of the labor force. Not only so. And now, China can also increase the education because for the labor force, not only the number counts, the quality is even more important. And as you know that in the past 10 years, the education in China expanded very rapidly. For example, in early 2000, each year, the enrollment for the tertiary education was about 1 million. Now it's close to 7 million. And with such a rapid increase in the you know, education, increase in the human capital, I think it can overcompensate 
for the you know, constraint in the number of workers. And certainly, China can also relax the you know, family planning, the birth control. And uh, because if China started to relax now, and 15 years from now, 20 years from now, then the population trend can be you know, not reversed, but it is mitigated, right? So I think uh, Asia is an issue, but it's not a real you know, straight to the potential I just described. And secondly, about you know, the recent you know, party congress and the new leadership, I think that uh, first, you know, except for Bo Xilai, almost everyone that predicted by people are still in the party bureau, right? Certainly, the standing committee, you know, you know, has some people, and and and, and, and but the most important one is the party bureau. So all the all everyone that you know predicted by people are basically there. And secondly, more important than that, you know, in China there's a consensus about the necessity of deepening reform. There's a consensus about the importance of opening up, further opening up of the Chinese economy. I think no matter who is in power, no matter which position who owns, I think that is a consensus among the leadership in China. So I do not worry about you know, whether the party, the AT party Congress will change the direction of China in China or not. For that, I think that I'm competent and then you can be competent also. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, then the third one about agriculture. Well, agriculture certainly is very important for China. We know that the market-oriented reform started in the agricultural rural sector. The move from the collective farming to the household farming and the improvement in the productivities, it provides the resources and the competence for the Chinese government to push the reform from the agricultural sector to the urban industrial sectors. That's one thing. And not only for, 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 for you know, treating the market-oriented reform, I think it's also very important for several dimensions. One is that the improvement in agriculture is important for first reducing the urban rural income. If the productivity in rural areas increases faster, the income in rural areas can also increase. And fundamentally, the population in the rural sectors is still about 48% of the Chinese population. <coughs> the labor force in agriculture is still about 30% of the labor force. And so if agricultural productivity continues to rise, their income can also rise. So it's very important for narrowing the urban rural gap. At the same time, agriculture can grow faster, then China will be easier to achieve the possibility. China will also be easier to generate the resources for the transformation from agricultural sector to the and also create a larger market for the
Well, they use those commands to support, let's say, hydrogen bubble. Then, even the percentage is very small, it can be troublesome, right? It can cause all kind of risk. But if they use those kind of funds mainly for, you know, productivity enhancing type of infrastructure, or productivity enhancing type of real sector investment, I think the investment can generate high enough return to repay the loan. And under the kind of situation, even the ratio seems to be high, it may not be risky. Certainly, the government needs to pay attention to that. But in the financial sector in China, you know, I say one is that how they use those coins for purpose that we need to watch out. And secondly, I think for China, more important, equally important is financial structure. As I mentioned, currently, the financial sector is dominated by big banks and the equity market. And for the big bank and the equity markets, in general, they would not serve agricultural households, small and medium-sized enterprises in manufacturing sector and the service sectors. But those sectors are the sectors of which China has competitive advantages. Those are sectors are the main sources of employment. Those sectors are the main source of China's competitive advantages, uh, competitiveness. But they could not get financial services. So in a way, their development is replaced. So for me, instead of looking into you know, the ratio of loan to GDP, I would see you know, the ratio of the loan who are channeled through the small local financial institution, which can serve the small and uh, and a small and labor intensive agriculture also or manufacturing sectors. Those kind of indicator is more important. Thank you. Mm. Um, okay, if I could have a microphone for Arthur Hussein up here. Yeah. And then just a warning, I'm gonna go upstairs in a minute. So but for Arthur first. As you said, China's mm. financial structure has an outdated institutional form and is also beset by many problems. Would you say that developed economies provide a model for the financial sector reform for China? If they do, well, would China be suffering from the same problem as the developed economies are doing now? Thank no. you. Thanks for that question. Okay, no. in back over there. Yeah, thank you. I'm Haider from Bain & Company. Uh, you gave a very good rationale of how uh, chi the Chinese mir miracle managed to change the world in an economical way. So my question is, now that China became one of the main powers in the world, 
what can China do on other fields like the moral field, uh, the cultural field, the intellectual field? What would be the three main uh, contributions China could make on these fields in the coming 20 or 40 years, according to you? Thank you very much. Okay. And then the woman who has her hand up in the middle part. Serena Liu from Essex University. Uh, back in the 1990s, uh, the dual price system was already identified as the cause of rent-seeking, official corruption, and the widening gap between the rich and the poor, such as by the Chinese economist He Qinian. Then why is the Chinese government only doing something, something about it now? Thank you. And then the last question on this round, gentlemen in the back, in the very back of the middle section. And I'll come around to other people in a minute. Okay. John Hoody, Bank of England. There's a lively debate about the opening of China's capital account, and in particular what the correct sequencing of reform should be. Do you have a view on that? Mm. Okay. Thank okay. you. Okay, I'd like to answer these four questions first. The first one is that the financial model in a high-income country and uh, how China should learn that will learn a lesson from that. I would say, as you can see from my argument, in a high-income country, in general, their financial sectors is dominated by big banks and also equity markets. And, 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 and if you read the financial economics textbook, they think that those are the modern financial institutions. And they try to extend those kind of models to every country. And by you know, Bretton Wood institution, like I am a World Bank in the past always, also otherwise the developing country to develop those kind of financial models. For example, when I was at the World Bank, I went to, uh, you know, low-income country with population less than 10 million, with per capita income less than 500. But if you look into the financial, the advice from the Bretton Wood institution is for them to develop stock markets and to further develop their national banks. And as a result, there are separation between financial services and the real economy. Because in a developing country, as I argue, the main production activity occur in sectors which, in general, they do not require too much capital. In agricultural households, or in the small, medium-sized uh, manufacturing sectors. And that kind of model, could not really provide the financial services to the people which make the largest contribution to their economic growth and development. So there's a need for us to revisit the financial model that we advocated in the international financial institution and also in academic circles. I remember about three years ago, I gave a talk about optimal financial institution in the same theater here. And I argue the financial institution, the structure of financial institution should, you know, mapping with the industrial structure in the economy. For the economy in the early stage of development, their you know, industrial structure in general are dominated by small scales agricultural households was small-scale, labor-intensive you know, manufacturing uh, or service sectors. Under that kind of situation, the main 
structure of the financial institution should be small and medium-sized local financial institution. And only when their economy grow, become more capital intensive, their production, their firm size increase, capital requirement increase, they should gradually move to the large bank and equity market. And, and that will be much more conducive to the sustainable ec economic growth and also improvement of income distribution. I think one reason why income distribution in the world worsening in the last few decades, I think the financial model is one of the very important reasons. Because the financial model that advocated so far only benefit the large corporation and rich people. So that's my answer to your question. And the second one about what China can contribute. I think that if we, if we read the intellectual history, in the modern times, that is after the Industrial Revolution, most of the intellectual framework came from the advanced country. And, and, and uh, in a developing country, the intellectual in the developing country, including myself, always think that there are some kind of holy book in the advanced country. And uh, once we learn those holy book, and we bring that back to our country, and we implement the you know, instruction from the Holy Book faithfully, we can modernize our nation. And I think that is the belief of the Chinese intellectuals. And when I was in the World Bank, I had the opportunity to have interaction with the intellectuals in many other developing countries. And I find that was also their belief. However, if we look into the performance, so far from what I see, the country which were able to move from low-income status to middle-income status, and from middle-income status to high-income status, their policy in general were considered as wrong by the standard you know, holy books. And they were successful. And so it's very important for the intellectual in the developing country and also in the developed country to recognize the facts because the purpose of any theory, I think there are two. One, to explain the economic phenomena. How come some countries become more successful? How come some countries become less successful? How come some countries have high income? How come some countries have low income? To explain that phenomena. And based, those, based on those kind of understanding to provide policy advice for individual households, for the firm, for the government to adopt intervention in order to improve the situation. Those should be the function of any theory. But so far, the result was very poor, as I mentioned. If you follow the teachings from the holy books, I did not see any successful experiences. And all the successful experiences show they adopt policy which are judged as wrong by the holy book. So I think it's very important for us to really look into what are the opportunities and the constraints and the possibility of the developing country in the process of their modernization. And this kind of situation happened certainly in a since World War II, there were a few East Asian economies. They were successful move from low income to middle income, even to high income. And so there was some study to them. For example, in 1993, 
the World Bank published a book called East Asian Miracles. However, international intellectual community did not take that book seriously. They thought that, that was exception, and it does not provide any general lessons. But now, I think with the rise of China, with the rise of Vietnam, and some other African country, and then we should really start to think carefully how come those successful developing countries, they did something considered wrong by the Holy Book, but they were successful. And now it's not only Japan, Korea, Taiwan. It's mainland China, it's Vietnam, it's Cambodia, it's in Rwanda in African countries, and Ethiopia in African countries. I think by that we may be able to come up with a much better understanding of modernity and come up with some kind of policies or action plan that we can make every country in the world to share the same prosperity. And now I'm coming to the issue of rent-seeking. Well, it has been there. As I mentioned, if you have a dual-check approach, you create a rent, and you're going to have rent-seeking. You're going to have corruption. But we know that for any policy, you cannot use an idealized model as a reference. You need to understand the realities. As I mentioned, if in the 1980s, 1990s, China would not retain those kind of necessary protections, then China will be just another example of Russia, or another example of East Asia miracles. Uh, no, it, it's an European country. And for the East European country, first we observe the collapse of their economy the stagnation of their economy. And the trouble in China also exists, right? The income disparity in, in Russia and the corruption in Russia, well, at least, I, will, I cannot say worse, but at least the same situation in China. So, you know, for an intellectual, it's not to use an idealized model, think that, well, you know, and I think that if you apply those kind of ideas as a model, you can get an idealized result. You need to really judge what are the feasibilities and what are costs, what are the benefit. And I think that in the 1980s, 1990s, as an economist, I know, if you have a distortion, you will have a corruption. But can I just say, because you have the distortion, you have a corruption, you need to remove distortion. And, and if I'm a responsible intellectual, I need also need to see, if you want to remove those kind of distortions, what will be the consequence? The consequence will be the collapse of the economy. And for fear of the consequence of that collapse, the government may reintroduce all kind of distortion in a disguised way. And that was even worse, right? And so I would say it's not a movement from the first best world to another first best world. We are moving in some kind of second best world or even ends best world. And so, and so another kind of situation, we need to you know, make the changes, use the Chinese resolve, so we call it That means what? You need to liberalize your mind and to find the truth from the facts to understand what was the best at that time but what is the best at one time does not mean it's the best for all the time. Just like the dual track reform. It was the best choice among all possibility in the 1980s, 1990s. But now, as I mentioned, China was not a poor agrarian economy anymore. 
China was a high middle income country. Capital was not so scarce. And so those, those kind of sectors which used to be non-viable now become viable. Used to be against China's compared advantage, now become China's, again, China's compared advantages. And so I think it's the right time to reform, to remove those distortion. And so that's my answer to you. How come that phenomenon, that trouble has been notified in the 1980s, 1990s, and only the reform only were talking about seriously recently because the condition changes. That is so-called keep up pace with the time. <laughs> and then the last one, the capital account liberalization. Well, again, this is something, you know, we need to have a structural layer. We need to distinguish capital into the foreign direct investment and the portfolio investment. For the foreign direct investment in the real sectors, in general, that increase the capital availability, that contribute to the, 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 the productivity enhancement, and those kind of capital should be as liberal as possible. But for the portfolio investment, in general, it's short run. And they were put into sectors which has a lot of speculative nature, like equity market, like a real estate market. And if you allow those kind of portfolio in investment to come in very rapidly, on the one hand, they push up the bubble in the real estate and equity market. Not only so they will push up the currency appreciation and reduce your competitiveness of your real sectors. And once your real sector's competitiveness was weakened, those kind of speculative letters will go out because they think that those kind of high prices in housing, high prices in equity, equity market were not you know, supportable. And then they are going to have a large outflow. And those kind of large inflow and large outflow create all kind of trouble for the developing country. So I'm quite cautious about the liberalization in the portfolio flow. So that's my answer to your capital account liberalization. Thank you. I think we, we have time for one last question. So the gentleman in gray in the middle for spatial equality. Mm. And we have the gentleman in the gray suit in the middle. And this will have to be our last question. So you are very Lucky guy. <laughs> uh, thank you, Professor Kwan. Uh, good evening. Uh, this is Gang Lu from the Epoch Times, mm. Da Ji Yuan. Uh, thank you, Professor Lin, for the very uh, interesting uh, speech today. And there are certainly diverse views on the Chinese economy outlook. Yeah. And I agree, it is a very difficult question to answer. Yeah. And today, when you go to Greece or even countries like Spain, mm. you see poverty which few people could have imagined five years ago. Right. Now, uh, my question is, uh, Professor Ling, really, on a more practical level, hmm. uh, what the ordinary Chinese people can do to protect their wealth in case, just in case, the Chinese economy collapses? Thank you. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I mean, come on, I, I mean... I mean, when I drive a car, I, I, I put on my seatbelt, not because I expect myself to crash, but, you know, it's for the... Oh, I, I think your, your, your question is well taken. China has a saying called Qi An Si Wei. 
even in a situation you feel so safe, but you also need to think of the possibility of crisis in the future. And those kind of attitudes will reduce the possibility of risk in the future. Okay. And for the ordinary Chinese citizen, the most important thing is for them to have a job so they can have an income. And when they have a job, then they save some of their money and uh, they, they invest some of the money in their human capitals and uh, invest some of their money in their younger generation and invest some of the money for the futures. I think that is the basic precaution principle that can be applied to any country and in any situation. But again, whether they can get a job very much depends on the overall economic development. If they have a good overall economic development in a sustainable way, then the job opportunity will increase and will be safe. You talk about Greece. And uh, if you look into Greece, that related to my response to the question about the financial you know, situation. Because a lot of those kind of prosperity that they got before 2008 was the rapid growth in their consumption financed by borrowing, and rapid growth of the government debt, and financed by foreign borrowing. Those kind of things are not sustainable. And, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, if we have a good understanding, the only thing which can be a sustainable source of growth is investment in the productivity sectors. And those kind of investment, in the short run, can create demand can create growth, and uh, in the long run can generate more resources for on the one hand consumption, on the other hand for further investment. And that is the reason why recently I have a debate in China, because in the past, since 2008, all the international pressure in China is to increase consumption, to, you know, to, 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 to readjust the model from the investment-oriented growth model to consumption-oriented growth model. I would say China needs to be very careful about those kind of advice. If China turns from the current investment-oriented growth model to consumption-oriented growth model, it will be an open invitation for crisis in the coming few years. Mm. It can generate growth for a few years, but it's not sustainable. When I say investment-oriented growth model, I do not mean consumption is not important. If you look into the consumption in China, actually China consumption is one of the highest growing countries in the world. Yeah. But those kind of consumption growth can only be supported by investment, increasing productivities. And as I mentioned, if you make investment increasing productivity, first it provide jobs so people can share the growth. Secondly, the investment generated more wealth in the future. And for that wealth, you can use part to support the consumption to maintain its growth, and a part to support further investment and further increasing in productivities. Only that can make consumption and growth sustainable. I think that's a lesson China needs to learn from the failure in the past country, and that's a lesson China needs to bear in mind, and I hope that will be a lesson in the high-income country and other developing countries as well. Thank you.
Okay. Now we've, we've come to the end of the evening. I apologize to those of you whose questions obviously are still there that I wasn't able to get to. I said, I said that there would, okay. yeah. <laughs> I said that there would be a reception at the end of the, the evening, and, and indeed there is, but it's in a relatively small men, venue, and I apologize again for those who have not uh, received invitations. It's, a, it's an invite-only reception at the Confucius Institute for Business London. So if you don't know where that is, you know, there will be uh, volunteers who will guide you there. Before we close the evening, I would like to thank you all for coming and for your patience and invite you to join me in thanking our speaker for a scintillating evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.